regulates outer space? It's an increasingly pressing question. In 1967, at the height of the first space age, there were 139 space launches. That stood as a record until last year when there were 144. It's clear that a second space age is getting into full swing. This time, firms are beaming internet broadband back to Earth. They're working on creating a space manufacturing industry. They're eyeing trips to Mars and more. So again, who regulates space? Who sets the rules? One federal agency in particular, the Federal Communications Commission, seems to be throwing its hat in the ring. It's making moves that could establish it as the nation's premier space regulator. That in turn could make it the world's premier space regulator. This assumes, of course, that the FCC's regulatory regime fosters innovation, enabling the United States to keep ahead in the new space race. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Here to spell out what's going on with the FCC and space, James Dunstan, Tech Freedom's own general counsel. Jim, welcome back. It is so good to have you. Great to be back, Corbin, and great especially to be back talking about space stuff. Uh, we need to get you in for a, a good, solid net neutrality episode. We're overdue. but <laughs> Yes, yes. Let's start by stepping back and trying to understand how we got here. The FCC is established in 1934 to regulate wire and radio. How does it wind up being our de facto regulator for satellites? Was that ever explicitly set forth by statute or did we just sort of drift our way here? Yeah, so this is a really important history lesson um, that we've got to go through. So 1934, you got the FCC Communications Act. 1958, you have Congress passing the NASA Act, which establishes NASA, takes it from being NACA to NASA and includes space in its portfolio. And of course, NASA begins to do some pretty incredible stuff in space. Um, and then in 1961, you get Kennedy saying, we're going to the moon by the end of the decade. Uh, all of this is happening really, really fast. Well, one of the things that, that NASA is doing at this, at this point is starting to build communication satellites. Now, AT&T, of course, has a monopoly at that point on terrestrial communications and says, well, wait a second, if you have satellites up there, um, you can beam stuff all over the place and suddenly the value of our submarine transmission lines that go under the oceans are highly diminished. So we, AT&T, need to be the ones building the satellites. And so there was this big kerfuffle and we had what was known as the ComSat Act, Communication Satellite Act of 1962 being passed. Very short time frame, 1958, 1961, 1962. And what the ComSat Act said is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to set up this quasi-private, quasi-public company, of which AT&T is part, but so are all the other telecommunications companies. And we're going to have them do the satellite communication stuff. And oh, by the way, we're going to have the FCC regulate that private-public uh, company. And so that's how the FCC got into uh, regulating satellites. 
because again, it regulates spectrum. And of course, to get communications over satellite up and down, it's gotta be spectrum. And that's the way things began. But of course, then fairly quickly, at least within a couple of decades, people realized that having this private public comsat thing wasn't very efficient. It wasn't making you know, as much money as it could. And then we started having private carriers come in and petition the FCC. And so the FCC had what it, what was called the open skies proceeding, where it began to allow private companies to also do space communications. So when it comes to communications, the Federal Communications Commission is rightfully the person who's regulating. But now fast forward to the present, and suddenly there's this thing called ISAM, in-orbit servicing, assembly, and manufacturing, which has virtually nothing to do with communications. But now the FCC wants to regulate as well. And that's why we're here today. That is a very helpful history. Uh, let's set the table then to get into ISAM, you know, try to get from there to here. Peyton Alexander has an article in this month's issue of Reason Magazine that I recommend. It's called The FCC, America's Other Space Agency. Now, the FCC went from regulating telegraphs to regulating satellites. So that's right on point. The piece has a good line. It says, if you're putting nearly anything in space, be it a communication satellite, a weather satellite, even a human being, you're going to communicate with it. And that makes sense. As you mentioned, the FCC regulates spectrum. You're sending messages back and forth. So far, so good. Uh, what I don't understand, you mentioned ISAM, if you're just doing stuff up in space, how do you get from a message going back and forth to then getting to regulate everything that goes on up there? As the article notes, the FCC seems to think it can regulate uh, reserve propellant requirements, orbital inclinations, relocation on orbit, reentry and disposal plans, orbital debris, and more. And the reasoning there being that each of those things affects the ability of space and satellite companies to operate without causing harm or interference to other licensees. That logic to me seems very flabby because by that logic, the FCC could regulate airplane wings to ensure that unsafe aircraft don't crash into cell phone towers or telephone wires or radio stations. So am I missing something or am I capturing the power grab? So you're partially capturing the power grab. The reason your analogy doesn't quite hold up is because we have another agency called the Federal Aviation Administration that very carefully regulates those wingtips. The problem with ISAM is there isn't any other federal regulatory body. And this is what's what we've known for quite some time is a huge hole in the American regulatory system. In fact, I testified before the Senate Space Subcommittee in 2017, I hope we can link to that testimony in the, in the show notes, uh, to talk specifically about this, the fact that there is this hole in the regulatory regime for what's known as, as on-orbit activities. So, okay, so you've got the FAA, which regulates launches and re-entries of vehicles. They also regulate payloads to make sure that in case a payload gets dumped 
into some into a farmer's field that doesn't kill their cow. Um, then you got the FCC that regulates the spectrum talking between the satellites. But there isn't any clear regulatory structure for who regulates the stuff that you just talked about. Propellants and docking, rendezvous and docking and thing and things like that. It just it doesn't it doesn't exist. And so on that sense, you've got this regulatory hole. The flip side is you've got this this sort of regulatory overburden because on things like orbital debris, for example, you have at least five, if not six federal agencies, all with their own orbital debris rules. And so you might find yourself wanting to do an activity in space that you might have to comply with somewhat differing, but certainly different paperwork for each on this. And so we've got this weird schism of overregulation on one hand and underregulation on the other. But now you've got the FCC saying, aha, there is this pun fully intended vacuum when it comes to ISAM. So we, as your friendly Federal Communications Commission, are going to step in and start regulating. Yeah, I mean, so obviously the analogy fails in the sense that there's the the FAA. I certainly get that. Um, but everything said after that, my brain starts going, well, that's not how our system works. We are a government of limited powers. You have the power once it's legislated and given to you. Uh, you don't have the power as an assumption until we tell you you don't. Um, and part of the people who oppose the administrative state, uh, why they oppose it is because agencies have a nasty habit of operating under the latter way of thinking rather than the former. Uh, which so, so I, in- I, I agree with that 100%. But the one strange overlay we've got here is in the one place where the FCC may ultimately prevail if its future regulations are challenged, is you've got, and I hate doing space law 101, but sometimes you have to do it a little bit. So you've got this uh, Article 6 in the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, right? And it requires that all countries both authorize and oversee the activities of their private citizens. And so there's this international law factor here, which somebody, and right now it's the FCC, can grab hold of and saying, well, in order to meet our treaty obligations, we have to authorize these activities in space and we have to supervise these activities in, in space. Now, I think that's an overreach, but it at least gives some sort of justification for what the FCC is doing as weak as that weak as that might be. Interesting. So in a past episode, to raise another wrinkle here, you and I discussed how U.S. laws are generally presumed not to apply extraterritorially and how that presumption cast out on whether the National Environmental Policy Act applies in space. Uh, and so I, I keep we we keep going around. I mean, everything you said is is uh, informed and very interesting, but it all kind of starts with the actor instead of the statutory authority. Um, I can't say, well, we have treaty applications, so so I, Corbin Barthold, American, will fill the void. Um, and actually, the FCC, uh, uh, an agency, has no. I mean, 
why can't uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission say that they're going to step in? I know that I'm getting a bit facetious, but the point is you start with where is your statutory authority that grants you this power? And if you don't have that, then you're kind of uh, playing dress up. So is there a similar extraterritoriality problem, again, to use a pun, floating around for the FCC's authority in space? Um which I guess is another way of saying, you know, should they be waiting for Congress to tell them, yes, we agree, go do this? So I, I would say yes and no. Great lawyerly answer. Um, when we're talking about communications to a space object and back down to Earth, absolutely, the FCC has jur statutory jurisdiction there. Very clear. It's been upheld multiple times. That makes perfect sense. Sure. But now if you're talking about, say, uh, you know, proximity operations, rendezvous and docking. And so I need to now have a radar system on my servicing vehicle that allows me to come up and dock with, you know, you know with, with the target. No communications back down to earth on it. It's an autonomous system. It's doing this. Should that radar system now be regulated by the FCC? That's where this breaks down because it's no longer a communications to Earth, space and space to Earth. It is a space to space communication that is going on. And I think it's a much more tenuous argument to say that the FCC can sort of get into the knickers of the radar system um, because as you pointed out, because if something goes wrong, then that could impact other space to earth communications. Well, now we are getting to, into sort of, you know, regu regulating the, the, uh, the curvature of a wing um, on an airplane at that point. It, it, it gets pretty tenuous and that's never been challenged. So understand that, that for example, with orbital debris, the FCC has has rules and, and you, you know, alluded to some of the contents of them. That's never been challenged. Um, nobody has ever taken up the FCC's into court and saying, um, you know, you denied this application because you you think our orbital debris mitigation plan is not sufficient. Um, you don't have the jurisdiction to do that. It just it's not been challenged yet. Um, I think at some point somebody is going to, and it's going to be a very interesting question as to whether or not the FCC because. All they can point to are sort of these ancillary jurisdictions that they have um, in, in the Communications Act generally. And as we know, uh, as administrative lawyers, um, the courts are less inclined these days to grant these sort of very broad authorities. Um, and even to the FCC, I mean, the FCC recently lost a case, um, NAB versus FCC, in which uh, you know, completely different topic, but it was a statute where Congress said for foreign programming, um, FCC, you have to write rules that do A, B, and C. And the, and the FCC said, well, that sounds great, but we want to do A, B, and C and D, E, and F. Um, we want to add to the statute. And the court struck that down in a very short opinion. I think that's one of the reasons it didn't ever get it. I think the whole opinion is less than 14 pages in the slip opinion. Um, where the court says, no, the statute says A, B, and C, you don't have the authority to add D, E, and F on the back end of this. Uh, you just don't. You know, Congress never gave you that authority. And so I think any challenge of some of this 
stuff, I, I think a court would be really constrained in saying, oh, these broad public interest um, obligations that are in the Communications Act can just be expanded by the FCC um, because they think it's a good idea. Yeah, to, to maybe quickly try to put a bow on this, you often refer to the line of a court uh saying, look, the FCC, you have ancillary jurisdiction, but ancillary to what if if it's not? And here, there clearly seems to be an, ancil an ancillary-ness to make up a word, you know, the satellites are sending signals. So when this kind of thing goes to court, I mean, are we going to end up with a debate over what, what does ancillary mean? How much ancillary-ness do you get? And it sounds to me like that would very much be a dispute kind of over the length of the chancellor's foot. Yeah, I, in one sense it would, but I think we got a couple of different uh, precedents specifically to the FCC that would be helpful here. I mean, you uh, referenced the ancillary to nothing quote. That's from um, the broadcast flag case, and that was a that was a a, a case where the FCC tried to uh, impose on the manufacturers of television sets a um, a requirement that they put in hardware and software which would, before a program was um, permitted to be shown on that television set, they would check to see whether or not that was a, there were proper copyrights in the underlying program. And the FCC said, this sounds great. And this was pushed by you know, Motion Picture, Picture Association, all the copyright holders. And the court said, well, wait, wait a second. No, 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 no. You, you have some minor ability to... Um, regulate television sets, the All Channels Act, which required television sets to have both VHF and UHF tuners in them, right? You can do that, but this goes into sort of the hardware of, uh, you know, of the television set, has nothing to do with the transmission. So whether or not um, a, if somebody is transmitting, which is in your, within your ancillary jurisdiction, whether or not it can be displayed depending on whether or not it's a proper copyright, no, you know, we cut the line off because it's got nothing to do with the transmission. And so I think the court would do a similar analysis here and say, you know, is what the FCC is trying to regulate with these ISAM regulations, is it part of a transmission earth to space, space to earth, or it is not? And I think that's where, you know, that, that's where it's going to come. And, and frankly, I think whoever decides to challenge it, really needs to pick the right case to do it because you know back to my you know, back to my scenario here of um I've got a a servicing robot I want to cozy up to a satellite um, and dock with it to repair it um okay if it's fully autonomous then the argument would be the FCC shouldn't have any you know input into what that radar system is but if I'm using TTNC telemetry, uh, you know, and control frequencies to talk to that um, satellite, well, maybe the FCC does have because it is part of that transmission path. Um, so it's going to be an interesting case, the first one that gets brought up, and I hope the right case goes up. Um, if you know, and, and I would say, uh, you know, in, in my sort of perspective, I don't want the FCC. Um, you know, doing a lot of this stuff when it comes to on-orbit activities 
not related directly to Spectrum. Um, so I'm, I'm rooting for that outcome, but it better be, be the right case or a court could easily you know, find, oh, no, no, that we, we, here's the transmission path. We found it within these regulations. Therefore, the FCC can, can regulate downstream of that. So it's going to be an interesting scenario to see how these, these get, get challenged. You know, and the other, the other sort of fundamental problem I've got here is that the FCC is great when it comes to spectrum, right? It's got the best engineers in the world when it comes to spectrum. They know spectrum inside and out. Um, you know, we've been participated in spectrum allocation and licensing um, proceedings at the at, at the FCC here at Tech Freedom many many times. And you have to hand it to them. To them, they know a lot about that stuff. But they know zero about proximity operations, about rendezvous and docking. They know zero about putting things together in space. They know zero about smelting metals in zero G and all this, the manufacturing stuff that people are dreaming about doing now. Yeah, I think we've set the table perfectly here for um, now to enter in space servicing, assembly and manufacturing. It's slightly self-explanatory, and we've certainly touched on a lot of examples in the discussion to this point. But it's probably now time to squarely address what, I guess, in broad strokes, does that term encapsulate? And what specifically is the FCC considering doing in this area? So, yeah, I mean, the first thing I, I would say is if you read their notice of inquiry in which we we follow comments, um, I was I was a bit taken aback by it from the perspective of it was as if they had discovered ISAM, like they were creating this whole new thing called ISAM. Um, and since they're creating it, they get to regulate it type of thing. And I, I and it really just sort of, you know, stuck in my craw a little bit because I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm a self-avowed Jerry's kid. Um and and only a small segment of the audience will even notice that is, but it's it's essentially Gerard K. O'Neill, um, who was the progenitor creator of large space structures back in the late '60s, early 1970s. And I knew Jerry, and I worked with him um, a lot. Um, and I mean, he wrote the book The High Frontier back in the back in the early '70s, you know, where he asked the question, which was, is the surface of a planet the place for an industrial society to conduct its activities. And his conclusion was no. I mean, we've screwed up this planet because we're polluting it like crazy. Why? Because we're an industrial civilization and we have to do nasty things to create all these great things that we use. And his his answer to that was you take it all off planet, right? And so that's ISAM. You know, it's in orbit activities, it's assembling large structures, it's manufacturing. It's not new. It dates back 50 years now. And, and and but the fact of the matter is to do that, you've got to be able to get to space. And that, of course, has always been the problem. Um, in real dollar terms, the cost to get to orbit hadn't dropped in the first 50 years of, 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 of the space race. Right. It was the same amount. And why was that? Because we kept building rockets and dumping them into the ocean and using them exactly one time. Um, until Elon Musk comes along and starts building rockets that land back on their, you know, you know on their tails, um, right out of science fiction, but it's now reality. And so that's the revolution that we're in that is allowing all of these dreams that have been around for 50 years to now begin to come to fruition. 
And so to say that ISAM is new is just false. It's been around a long time. The fact is, we are now beginning to see the fruits of that labor because now instead of you know, $10,000 a kilogram to orbit, we're down to $1,000. And we're going to go down maybe even another order of magnitude, such that people can think about doing these things um, finally. And so it's not new, but it's just coming to fruition now. Yeah, I mean, one example I'm I'm at least aware of, like uh, Varda is a company that now can partner with SpaceX to do cheap launches. And it says that there are certain things that you can manufacture in zero gravity. Uh, I am not a physicist. I have no capacity to get into this particular thing, but that, that you cannot manufacture on Earth. There are certain materials we can create up there um, is just one example. Yeah, no, a a absolutely. I mean, there's there's everything from you know pharmaceuticals because chemical you can do chemical compounds that would never form on Earth in, in gravity. If you do it in micro G, you can you know you can create these things that then become uh, you know bonded and you can bring them back down. So I mean, the, the, there's a myriad of of, of these act activities, and yeah, we should think about okay, how are we going to regulate them? But the fundamental question we could keep coming back to is, well, who should be doing that? Um, so is the is the FCC currently just ex, are they looking at specific things they want to do or are they just sort of did they send out a notice saying, hey, we as, as you put it, we discovered mm -hmm. this is a thing like tell us about it. Yeah, where where are we at? And then also, what did you have to say about it on behalf of Tech Freedom? Yeah, so so. It was sort of between the two. It wasn't either extreme. It wasn't. Um, and we think that we're going to adopt specific rules for rendezvous you know, proximity operations and docking. No, they didn't say that. They did say, tell us about it, what you think is, is going to happen, um, and tell us what you think we should be regulating um, on. Uh, on one side, but and then on another sense, you would read some of those paragraphs in the NOI, you know, some of which that you you you, you know, sort of quoted. It's like, wow, they are pretty quickly getting down into the weeds of what you would say are operational parameters, not just you know theoretical constructs here. And that's what that's what concerned me most, and that's what I really focused our comments on. Um, I, you know, I said two things. One is when it comes to spectrum, you're the guys, you're the man. Do it, you know, um, and more importantly, figure out new and innovative ways to use spectrum because the spectrum bands for Earth to space and space to Earth and space to space, um, all separate allocations of frequencies are very limited and we're we're bucked up against them right now. So you've got to find more spectrum. Um, and so, you know, our comments were do what you do best, you know, which is engineer spectrum stuff um, and get on it right now. So yes, go do that. But when it starts talking about operational things like that, you have no expertise. Um, you, you, you know, you've never docked a, a spacecraft, as far as I know, FCC. Um, why are you th even thinking about adopting regulations that would impact that? So essentially, we told the FCC, stay in your lane, um, but drive fast in that lane because we need that spectrum. Well put. You mentioned the FCC doesn't currently have expertise in space operations. The FCC's chair, Jessica Rosenworcel, recently announced that the agency will create a space bureau. Uh, 
Jim, I know you have thoughts on this. Uh, please share. I mean, is this a, a route to getting to that expertise you want? Or is this a dead end? Or is this just the spectrum stuff? I am uh, of perfect ignorance on the topic. So please educate me. So if I were in charge of the Space Bureau, and I will never be, uh, I guarantee you, um, I would, again, I would establish that lanes very quickly. Um, and here, so when Chair Rosenworcel announced this, we came out with a press release um, and we said the following, good job, great, do it, stand it up as a separate bureau. It needs to be, be there. Um, because the big problem with the FCC right now is it can't get things done quickly enough. I mean, that's the other part of this revolution that we're that that we're witness, witnessing here now is the fact that with the ability to launch more stuff more cheaply into space, you need more licenses. And so the all of that's now done within the International Bureau, which has a whole bunch of uh, of masters to you know that it has to answer to. Uh, and so pulling the licensing and allocation of spectrum into a separate space bureau makes great sense and is way overdue. Um, again, this was all set up in the 1980s um, when we saw 12 launches a year of 12 geostationary satellites um, and that was it. And, and, and those satellites were 200 to $300 million satellites um, that took three to five years to build and launch. You, we now are in an age literally where a classroom can go from a blank piece of paper to something on orbit in less than six months. That actually makes a lot of sense. And it blows my mind as a geriatric millennial, as we're called, that when I was a kid, like my Nintendo game, Mario, my Casio watch, that level of technology that we were launching anything into space, never mind 20 years earlier yeah. um, with the space program. So you're describing it that way actually is a good concrete way to think of it like there has been progress we've come a long way anyway yes go ahead and, and and the problem is we're still stuck in this licensing processing um sort of conveyor belt which still thinks you've got three years to do that and you don't and so now we've got this backlog of licenses at the fcc um and one of the things that that, that has engendered unfortunately is uh, people moving offshore, uh, going to other jurisdictions, getting licenses in crazy places like Papua New Guinea, you know, because they can find some bureaucrat to you know put a rubber stamp after handing them a few thousand bucks, and they've got a license. And under our open skies theory here in the United States, I can then take that license, walk into the FCC, and say, "Dear Commission, please grant me what's known as market access." into the United States to serve the United States based on this piece of paper I got from some other jurisdiction which has less expertise than the FCC has on this uh, on this stuff. And so that's what's happened is this, this diaspora of, of technology going outside this country of US companies doing this. It's not like these are all foreign companies. These are US companies going offshore because they can't abide by the long timelines. To, to get stuff done here. And so standing up a space bureau, if they can speed the processing time for lessons, I am 100% behind that because frankly, in my private practice, I've had to tell 
my clients, you need to go offshore to get your get your license. Um, and imagine sitting down. I'm, I have a very you know, a very particular um, memory of sitting down in person with a client um, who the chairman of the board of which was a uh, you know an admiral, retired admiral, and telling him that he had to go to another country to get a license. Yeah, and he just shook his head and he said, "That can't be the case." I'm American born, American bred. I'm American company. Why the heck do I have to go overseas? And I explained, you know, that that he would never meet, he would never be able to close his business case because he couldn't get his funding if he had to tell his investors, it's going to be three years before we can get this license. Um, and so if the Space Bureau can cut that time down, great, go for it. You've segued us perfectly back into the subject of a new space race. The People's Republic of China accounted for 40% of space launches in 2021. The U.S. presumably has stayed ahead because our private space industry has the regulatory room to thrive, certainly in, in building what, say, SpaceX is building. You've mentioned speeding up the licensing process. Um, what other, if any, concrete steps would you like to see the FCC take going forward or even just the federal government as a whole so that we maintain our edge? So I, I, I think it is manifestly the most important thing to do is to streamline our regulatory systems across the board. Um, we need, and we need Congress to do this. We need Congress to tell us, okay, where exactly do those jurisdictional boundaries end? Um, what is it, what is FAA's role? What is the FCC's role? What is the Department of Commerce's role? I mean, there is a Office of Space Commerce in the Department of Commerce, which has sat basically unmanned, unpersoned for many, many years. Um, and yet, technically, they've got authority uh, 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 over a lot of this, including what's known as space traffic management. Um, they're the ones that are supposed to be doing the space traffic management stuff. So we well, you're need... helping me feel like my first four or so questions were not stupid questions then. No, no, no. <laughs> so so we need to, we need a whole government approach to this. Uh, and I hate that term generally, but this is one of the cases where we need a whole government approach. We need to make sure that, that the right people are doing the right kinds of things. And Congress has to tell us how to do that. And unfortunately, they've been... Because they haven't been able to do that, because we have a highly dysfunctional Congress, that's where we get, coming back full circle, that's where we get this regulatory vacuum, and the FCC says, aha, we will jump in and save the day. Yeah, I've mentioned on the pod multiple times, maybe to you before, you know, Balaji Srinivasan's observation about just state capacity, and where we've got agencies that were stood up in the New Deal to address New Deal issues and engage in New Deal thinking that are now uh, approaching, you know, zero gravity manufacturing and institutions adapt. So maybe it will work. Um, maybe they evolve and it's fine. But when you put it the way Balaji does, it does kind of startle you into thinking, oh, right. You know, we don't we don't insist that IBM continue to be our computer manufacturer because it existed first. Uh, we let new things come in and do things in new ways. And it is a natural uh, lag uh, in our state capacity that our institutions are 
um, are older. And I think that's just, that's cause for concern at a very high level. You know, it, it, it is. I mean, and in fact, I mean, you know, I slap myself in the face when I say this, but I do think about whether or not we do need a federal space commission. Maybe we do. And I, gosh, the last thing I want is a new bureaucracy, you know, uh, being, found, you know, being, being you know, well, dropped key, on right, would be step one, that it sucks up all the authority from other yes. places to the maximum extent possible. Whereas the way we normally do things is like with the Department of Homeland Security, where we just layer a new one exactly. on top of all the others. Exactly. And that would be a disaster, I think. Yes, yes. And I, you know, and, and I've actually thought about how, how you would approach this. And I am going to be thinking in the new year a lot about this. But there's one more thing I want to talk about, and because you and I have talked about this in the past, is, is the sort of unattended financial consequences of some of this. We've talked about the FCC and USAC and the Universal Service Fund, for example. Well, here's the really perverse thing that can happen here. And that is, remember that the FCC is self-funded, right? It's not funded by Congress. It's not funded out of the general revenues. It's funded out of the licensing fees it charges and the, the annual regulatory fees that all of its licensees have to, have to pay. And that's great, you know, and, and I, I sort of like that, you know, that model. But the way the FCC allocates regulatory fees and licensing fees is based on how much work it has to do. And so if you've got a space bureau which expands the areas and and starts bringing in more full-time employees, FTEs, to expand its expertise into space proximity operations and rendezvous and docking and all that. If it starts building up that, it then has to account for that. And then it has to charge back the licensees for gaining that expertise. And so you get this weird cycle in which if the FCC gets what some people want, the regulatory fees that it has to begin to apply to space operations might kill those space operations because it's now too expensive. If, if I have to now, in order to get a license to do a docking you know, with a commission, now have to pay $100,000 to do that, one, I might not be able to close my business case, or two, I may go offshore again because I can find some bureaucrat to take less money to do it. So this is just there's this, just this weird sort of unintended consequence of the FCC even wanting to gain that expertise to be able to regulate because it has a direct pecuniary impact on the people it's going to regulate. And so, well, you just, yeah, it, 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 it hurts the mind to think about that. Sometimes cliches are true. Capital will go where it is wanted and it will stay where it's welcome. Um, shifting as we close out to the, the high level, you can even get philosophical if you'd like. Um, are you optimistic that the United States will maintain its edge in space uh, in the decades to come? I am 100% optimistic that we will. Um so I am gray-haired and old enough to know. I, I went through the real dog years of space entrepreneurship in the 80s and the 90s. Because in the 80s, remember, we had the space shuttle, right? And it was gonna it was gonna launch, 
every every two weeks. Um, and it was going to do every, it was going to be everything and do everything for everybody, right? There were these things called getaway specials, the gas can specials, where you could put a commercial payload for $10,000 and get it to orbit. Well, we had the Challenger accident, you know, the Columbia accident, and all that went away. And we literally lost a generation of the best minds got out of space. They went into the internet. Um, they truly did. The reason the inner, I, I, I have long advocated, the reason the internet flourished in the United States first was partially because the greatest minds in the country, young minds, got out of space because there was no pathway for them to actually do stuff in space and got into the internet. Well, guess what? The, you know, the, the best young minds now are getting, are, are fed up with the internet for a lot of reasons and are getting back into space. And so I have unbelievable amount of good thoughts about what's going to happen in the United States because we are gaining back that next generation of great young minds and engineers. Um, and we can now innovate any country in the world, full stop. We've always done it. We always will do it. And so unless we screw it up you know, by bad regulatory regimes, I am. I, I believe that we can forever be dominant in space if we want to be. Jim, props to you. Often, maybe it's caused by me. We end the podcast on sour notes or I'm scrambling to find some silver lining. It's great to end an episode for once with just pure sunshine. That's fantastic. Um, I joked at the outset that we're overdue for another net neutrality episode, but what we're really overdue for is having you on sometime where we just talk deep philosophy of the future of space um, across centuries, you know, Dyson spheres and uh, our cosmic future and that kind of stuff. So, well, I'll, I'll tease it. I just finished um, a, a paper for a set of NASA manuscripts on interstellar flight, uh, and they asked me to do the chapter on governance on how do you govern an interstellar ship, a multi-generational ship. And I just finished it, got it back to the publisher yesterday. Um, when it comes out, I would love to talk about it because it was a fascinating study that I've done before in my career. And I came up with a really radically different conclusion about how you govern um, an interstellar ship um, that we'll leave it with that tease and come back and do that again. I try most of the time to ask guests to preview something or give them an opportunity to say what they've got coming up and you've done it for me. That's fantastic. Listeners, look out for that one in uh, 2023. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Erudite, as always, uh, you're a fantastic guest. That's why you're here so much. Um, and I look forward to having you on again. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. I am Corbin Barthold. If you enjoy conversations like this one, please give us that five-star rating wherever you listen. It does us a lot of good. And if you really, really enjoy conversations like this, head over to techfreedom.org and uh, you're more than welcome to go find that donate. Thank you all. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.